Listen, you've got. Did you get tickets for Hamilton? I did get tickets. Did you? Because I saw it. I, I'm cr- I hate it's you so brilliant. much. It was. It's, it's absolutely. I tell you, you're in for a treat. You're oh in for a treat. God, I so love it. I love everything about it. So I love the music. I love the way it's done. It's just. Oh. I tell you, I just. But the, I'm and sorry. I got a little book which which outlines everything with. I get all the lyrics and stuff. Ah, and then it's like, a Hamilton. It, oh. <laughs> Should we begin? Yeah, let's start. <laughs> Hello, listeners, and welcome to the first Unions for Everyone podcast of 2018 with me, Simon Sapper. And me, Becky Wright. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Well, whew, I hope you had a good Christmas and New Year. Uh, we're barely into the New Year, and bang, we're off, aren't we? Um, the name on everyone's lips, I suppose, is Carrie Gracie. Oh, that was quite interesting turn of events well, yesterday. Well, I mean, power to her elbow. I mean, in terms of saying, actually, I don't want this job. You know, copied by Justine Greening in terms of saying, I don't want a job. Thank you very much. I will. I'm happy the way I am. It's not quite the same, of course, but um, not the same at all, actually. I had a quizzical look on my face, and for once, I wasn't starting a sentence laughing. I was just like, I'm really lost on where Simon's going with well, this. Well, it's one. just it's just money isn't the only driver in all circumstances. Even though Carrie Gracie is saying actually pay inequality is the issue for me, and that's why I'm not staying on as China yeah. editor for the BBC. I mean, I thought. There were a few things that kind of came out at me when I read the article yesterday where she talks about it. And the first one was, isn't there any kind of pay structure or system or job evaluation at the the BBC? And then also the idea of, say, if you did have like a kind of structure of, you know, this bureau chief gets this or this editor gets that for whatever reason... It doesn't stand to me that the China editor wouldn't get the same as the Washington editor because the importance of China in both the world economy and even more so in terms of foreign affairs just seems to be quite uh, ludicrous. And it was I just thought it interesting that she did it as she was resigning and then went and did the work on the Today programme that same morning that she was doing it, which I thought was a really interesting uh, interview well, between her and her ex kind of colleague. Well, I mean, she's a professional journalist of, of many, many years standing. Uh, and, you know, I mean, you know, Beijing... An NUJ was, member. Uh, and, and, and indeed, and, and, and Beijing's not going to be a, a soft gig, is it? So, no. I mean, so obviously someone of her experience... You know, Fluent sure, Chinese speaker, experienced in all of this. Well, well, that's what makes it all the more um, weighty, if you like. This, this, is, this, is, you know, this is something that's clearly been given a lot of serious consideration. Uh, and, and uh, by Miss Gracie, and and you know she's at, she's got a plan of, of campaign. And the point you make about comparators, I think, is interesting. This, of course, will be tested now that the papers are with the lawyers and and the Equality and Human Rights Commission are, are, are involved. I kind of think, if I was an employer, then I think I could make all sorts of arguments to say why Washington isn't the same as Beijing, and why Mumbai isn't the same as Beijing, why even Berlin or the whole of Spain isn't the same as Beijing. Too many local variable factors that you could call into play for an unscrupulous employer, and I'm sorry BBC to call you unscrupulous, but on this occasion your behaviour I think is lacking. You need to act quicker, as the NUJ have 
constantly said in terms of their, their collective grievance on behalf of over 100 of their members working for the BBC. But I, so I'm, you know, it will be tested, I guess. I, I mean, I, I suppose I've been in the union movement long enough to have a process approach to this to some, uh, to some degree. And I came back to, well, what actually is the job? What does it entail? You're managing an office, you're managing potentially a group of people, you're doing a particular type of work. It's the nature of the work, I think, that means that she's entirely right to say I should be paid the same amount of money. Like, in terms of real, what the real differences are between working the Beijing office and working the Washington uh, office, what, what fundamental differences are there? Yeah. Other than the potential place that it puts you on the world stage especially as, as i mean washington's but the one that, 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 that's sort of come up as the other big office but it's worth reminding listeners if you haven't clocked this already that, that the bbc were proposing to pay carrie gracie 180 grand a year to head up the beijing office john sopel who heads up the washington office according to the newspapers is paid between 220 and 250 thousand a year I, I think it is is the difference if there should be any difference at all is it that great yeah I mean, exactly you know so it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting. And I mean, this, of course, resurrects something that was running very strongly uh, throughout the back half of 2017, quite rightly very strongly, which is the notion of equal pay and, and the, the way in which there is institutionalised discrimination in pay terms against women in the workplace and in many other terms as well. Yeah, and with the recent Golden Globes, Time's Up campaign, Why We Wear Black, um, it's sort of brought to mind a question that I had when I was at university that stuck with me. I mean, God knows how many years ago now. This is still one of the only questions I ever remember from university. So it must have been a good one. It was really really thought-provoking to me. Uh, It was, you know, new social movements have come about because of a moribund labour movement. The whole idea being that civil rights organisations and feminist wave of activism has sprung out purely because the labour market, can't, uh, the labour movement can't respond to these particular identities, and, and from then on, in you get identity politics. And it, and it was interesting to me as I was listening to Oprah's speech. I thought, I really like this. This is a really nice speech. However, I've got a question, Oprah, which is, how much do you pay your people who work in your house, the domestic workers in your house, and how do you treat them? And you know, let's think about all the different organisations that you run or are a part of and kind of what you do with the power and the money and the influence you have in order to kind of make things better for everybody. I suppose it's quite unfair of me to pinpoint uh, Oprah with that, but that was my kind of question to all of these people across the heart, everybody who was wearing black. And let me just say, I thought it was really interesting that there was a lot of men wearing black, but there wasn't many of them that made speeches about it and sort of said so overtly uh, within the ceremony itself that they supported the campaign. But it does kind of bring to mind this whole, what are we doing? Where are we going as, as a trade union movement in, in terms of dealing with all of these issues and how do we do it effectively and collectively and is there a role for us to play in all of this? Well, well I mean, of course, there's a role. I would argue absolutely there's a role 
uh, for us to play. And I, I mean, I love the, the question that you, you, you recalled there. I think it's a, a very interesting one. It's not one that, that I would say definitely yes or no to, which, of course, is the point of all university exam questions, isn't, <laughs> isn't it? Isn't it? Um, I mean, you, you, look at, you, look at, yeah, you look at the civil rights movement, if you like. The civil rights movement came out of a very active labour movement in this, in this country. Yeah, yeah. Um, where, whereas other forms of expression and, and, and representation and protest probably have been born out of a frustration to a certain extent with uh, with the labor movement or sections of the labor movement at various times in in the recent past but we still have a legacy of of process i think in the uk yeah. labor mar- mar- uh, market i think it's 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 a legacy from high density days if you like but it's and still, structural influence and, stru- as and structural well. influence it, it, mm. it, it, it's it's it's, influence. it's still there and th- th- therefore will we see the the kind of the, the black dress the, the, the Time's Up, the Oprah Winfrey type of thing at the BAFTAs, for example. Yeah, I, I did wonder which, that, which I have to say, everybody, we're recording at Equity, which is part of the reason why I was thinking about what happened to the BAFTAs. Well... Thank you, Equity, for the Thank room. you, Equity, indeed. I'm not sure we will. And I'm, the reason I'm not <laughs> sure we will is because we are... We process preoccupied. I think we are process preoccupied, actually. And not uh, not to the, at the expense of, of output. We still want the output. Uh, from it, uh, as as we'll hear later on in this podcast with an interview about the Uber Employment Tribunal case with uh, with Maria Ludkin of the GMB, which is absolutely fascinating. But that shows you know, we have a we have a faith, a preference, uh, a habit of procedures, and some, perhaps sometimes that habit is not as helpful as it might be in terms of dynamism and fluidity. Yeah, I mean, whenever people say to me, "Oh, look." this is what happens in the States and we could just go and and replicate it. I kind of always take a little bit of a step back and think, well, we're operating in a different climate. We have a different way of doing things born out of our geography and born out of our history. That's in general, not just kind of pertaining to the labor, to the labor movement. And and I just, I don't think you can always say it's worked here. Therefore it's going to work there. I think you can say what elements of this that worked, would work over here and I think there is you know that kind of high profile stunt type stuff of wearing all black would work over here obviously you know it would kind of generate discussion and interest and I think this is all part of the idea of you know you speak truth to power when we come you you can't do it effectively on your own You've, you've got to have other people but there has to be leadership within that and I think all of this has started a real conversation about women's experiences and other marginalised groups and their experience in the world of work and how we can make the world of work better. And there's lots of different policy uh, prescriptions for that uh, and solutions to that. It's not one size fits all. It's not going to be just as easy to set up a legal defence fund over here as it is over in the States, I don't think... Partly, I think, because there are some processes which we can use if, to some extent more effectively to root out some of the root causes of this. The other thing I kind of have as an organiser, which is that stuff like this is is good, but it doesn't deal with the real... There's only one way to deal with the real problem, and you kind of have to kind of deal with some of these insidious things, root and branch. You can't just deal with it after the fact. You can't just treat the symptom, the symptom without yeah. treating the cause, because then it will just come back again, and that's yeah. why the Me Too movement in the UK... You know, is is one that is is gathering pace. Will continue to gather pace until there is, I, I believe, until there is fundamental change. A woman's place is in her union. Always has been, uh, as well as being part of the resistance. <laughs> oh, I love that T-shirt. It's really good. <laughs>
<laughs> so I mean, so we, we've kind of we've kind of uh, kind of sort of self-identified, if you like, two of the issues that are going to rumble on through this year: the question of pay equality, as opposed to a generic kind of what's the pay gap. Here is the pay inequality issues, which, uh, if you want to hear more about, if you listen to our episode with Marion Scovel of Prospect talking very eloquently about about the different strategies you need to deal with both those things so so we've got we've got pay inequality we've got gender inequality inequality recognizing there's a, a lot of crossover between between the two what else do you think is going to occupy our minds <laughs> in the period coming forward <laughs> and in which mine just went completely blank because i just was going to say with all of that you know with my intersectional hat on let us not forget how equal pay is even further off for um, black and minority ethnic women how those of us with disabilities can struggle uh, in terms of pay equity and equality how are the doors shut and how can we open them to people from all walks of life to be into our life Uh, horizon scanning for 2018 I'm not going to make a prediction and I'm not going to make a resolution Go on. <laughs> no, because I think if anything, we all know that if you make a prediction now, come uh, a month's time, you'll probably wow. be proved wrong. But what That's I, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but what I would say is we are entering the 150th birthday of the TUC. So happy birthday, TUC. You I know a you, bloody big cake for that. Yeah, you do need a big cake for that. Um, and I know the, the celebrations haven't started yet, but it is, I think, going to kickstart a series of conversations within the movement about what do we do for the next 150 years or even really the next 10 years. And I think that's going to be a really important one. Obviously, we have our conference in April that's going to be dealing with that explicitly. But I think there will be a a series of discussions and conversations and activities throughout this year that's really going to make us stop and think about what are we doing? What's the point of it? How do we do what we're doing better? And what might we need to change? Um, and now those conversations will be really interesting. I think so. And I think that's the umbrella that under which sit a number of other issues, some of which very explicitly kind of union related and others of which are, you know, seem more political but have an inevitable union dimension. And I'm thinking the political, the, the, the union related one, of course, is Matthew Taylor. What happens yep. to his recommendations? And uh, listeners will be hearing directly from, from Matthew uh, in a future podcast, uh, which will be out uh, in a few weeks' time. But the, other, the, the general political issues that I think are going, to, are going to demand a union response because they're going to be hitting members and potential members so hard are going to be personal debt, yep. which I think is on the brink of spiraling well out of control again, just like it did 10 years ago, yep. and housing. Yeah. Partly because of Grenfell and... and what Grenfell says about our values as a society and about liability and about standards, um, but partly because actually the private rented sector and the drug, there have already been some steps forward to improve things for private renters, but now is the time for private renters to be able to pick up the rights that they've been given as a result of new legislation. And unions who are, who are kind of emotionally and politically committed to a fairer housing system that's a challenge for them not least because their members will be saying what are we doing about this and demanding change i think yeah and there's a really great book called raising hell raising expectations raising hell by jay mccalevy which is available in all good booksellers it's not an ad actually she talks about her first foray into union campaigning and a bit 
it being about housing, uh, which was always, which was, a, it's a really interesting little read, and it really gives you some a pause for thought, kind of coming on from my talk about the future of unions, about what's our role going to be in these sort of issues that affect our members, but don't necessarily happen directly in the workplace. And what do we, how do we organise around that, and what do we do, and and what resources do we put into that? Well, that's that's the key question, isn't it? That's the kind of a yeah. visceral, existential que- question oh, that we need to address. Oh, we've got philosophical. Oh, <laughs> not half. I think the question that you raised and that you recalled about does a moribund labour movement mean that we have to have new forms of social activism? I paraphrase the question, of course. Yeah, is, I quite is like one, that. I think I prefer that to the original. It's one that we'd like your views on as well. Absolutely. And if you've got, if you've got a view, if you've got a contribution, if you've got a, an angle you, you think we should look at or, or, or pick up, just, just email us in at info at unions21.org.uk. We would love to hear your views on that question. But now to our special guest, I suppose, and we, we could call them that, um, and, and that's, that's Maria Ludkin, Head of Legal at the GMB. Uh, I met with her very recently uh, and to discuss the Uber case and what flows from it, and I think you'll find this very, uh, a very illuminating discussion. Really looking forward to hearing it, Simon. Well, I'm very pleased to, to have with me uh, at the moment Maria Ludkin. Maria, thank you very much for taking part in this podcast. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year too. And, and we're sat here in the GMB's London, London offices, which has been the, the, the kind of the centre, the, the nerve centre of an extraordinary piece, really, of, of trade union legal work, and that is, of course, the Uber case. Now, Uber have been in the news uh, a lot, haven't they, Maria, over the last couple of years, usually for bad reasons. But, but what was the case about, the specific, the first tribunal 2016 case about? Okay, well, um, GME's got quite a long history of organising in quite difficult to organise groups. Um, Uber drivers fell into that category because um, they were being treated as self-employed. Um, we had a group of Uber drivers who came to us and said that they weren't satisfied with their self-employed status, they didn't believe it was right. So we started to review their terms and conditions and the element of control that Uber had over them. And it quickly became clear that they, at the very least, fell into a interim worker status category, if not, on some occasions, looking like fully employed. Uh, we brought in a, a very, very good employment law firm, Lee Day, to pick apart uh, the whole case. We had numerous meetings with Uber drivers and other drivers, and eventually we bought a claim for employment status for Uber drivers. Was it simply that the Uber drivers were, were sort of the head of the queue? I mean, could it have been a, a, a different firm's drivers or riders, however you want to call them? It was just this was the one that was, that was ripe first, as it were. Yeah, I think that that's fair. Uh, obviously, there's about 30,000 people driving for Uber in London, though the vast majority of them drive less than five hours a week. But um, there was a large group and a large pool for us to evaluate their, their experiences. So it went to tribunal, we were saying, the union was saying, these these are not self-employed, they're employees, and what was the result? It was decided that they had worker status, which is this interim status which gives them some employment rights, uh, but most importantly means that they're entitled to sickness and holiday pay, and um, that there'd presumably been a long history of unlawful deductions from them because they hadn't been receiving the various um, pay and rights that they should have. So, they should, so it, it, in essence, they had rights and the employer wasn't respecting them. That's right. So, so then, then, in terms of the news chronology, TfL took Cooper's licence away from it. And, but that's nothing to do with the tribunal case, is it? No, it's, a, it's unrelated, though um, it would be fair to say that the huge amount of publicity around our employment rights case drew out a lot of commentary about other issues around Uber. 
Um, there were all sorts of issues about whether they were complying with the regulations, whether they were acting properly as a as a taxi uh, firm under the regulations that TfL imply, all sorts of issues around Uber drivers generally. Um, and that commentary, I think, then led TfL to really reevaluate the position. Right, OK. So so we had the tribunal win, we had TfL, and the, the two are separate, but kind of there's a kind of interface between them. And then there was an employment appeal tribunal in November, I think. That's right. So Uber, by definition, have to appeal all of these cases as far as they possibly can because their business model so fundamentally relies on pretty much an open access licence and also treating the drivers as self-employed. So we anticipate that this will be appealed as far as Uber can take it in terms of the employment rights case. In terms of the TfL licence case... The GMB have applied to be interested parties in Uber's appeal against the loss of their licence, and the courts have accepted that. Right, and presumably the, the aim here, I mean, some people might be confused about the, the aim, but the aim here from the GMB's point of view is not to drive Uber out of business, it's to just make sure that they play fair by their workers. That's exactly right. All we've been seeking all along is a level playing field with other private hire drivers, uh, which we represent. We represent lots of drivers across all sorts of groups like Addison Lee and other and other drivers. And you mentioned Addison Lee, but Addison Lee w- was the second of, of what I suspect will be a series of cases. Now, yeah. was it exactly the same setup as, as Uber or were there something, some things that were distinctive? Uh, no, it was pretty much exactly the same. What we're seeing, um, there are two strands of cases that we're bringing, one involving lots of different types of private hire contracts for drivers and second strand, which is all sorts of logistics drivers. So that's why we're bringing cases in Hermes, DX, UKID, and a range of other uh, logistics companies. But what we're seeing is a pattern of drivers being treated as self-employed when, in fact, they're very heavily controlled by the employers. Indeed. I I was going to say, this seems like a a trend that there's going to be, not a conveyor belt exactly, but, Mm -hmm. but, and I guess one... All of us in the labour movement just have to hope that the employers wake up, smell the coffee and start doing the right thing yeah. to save everyone a load of time, trouble and grief. That's correct. It's not all um, wins though, is it? I mean, I, I, the Deliveroo case that was not a GMB case it seems, to have, seems to have kind of not set us back, but I mean it's kind of put up a, road, a roadblock as um, it were. Yeah, I think that there are, um, you know, you have to think tactically about these cases. There are some cases which look the same but you have to think quite carefully about whether you've got the resources and the you know, legal ability to bring them. So we are quite careful at GMB about the cases we bring. I suppose what we're seeing with, with the Deliveroo case particularly is these, you've got these organisations who are almost gaming the, the, the law. They're finding a loophole that they can sneak through. In this case, Deliveroo riders being able to get their mates to do the job if they can't or don't want to. That's right, substitution. I mean, that's a, that's a, a loophole that we're seeing again and again, though... In fact, when you investigate, quite often it's almost impossible to actually substitute. Quite aside from that, I think you make a a very good point about these issues about gaming the system. The more complex the rules become, the more gaming we're going to see. That's why we've got particular concerns about some of the recommendations in the Taylor Review, uh, which seem to be setting new layers of complexity, uh, new bandwidths, which we think everyone will start trying to work around from an employer perspective. It's almost an iron law, isn't it? In any situation, if there's a rule, if you want to, if you, you know, if you want to bend or break the rule, you'll find a way to do it. I, I, I was going to ask you about Taylor and what this means for Taylor, because of course, in amongst all this, we've had the Taylor review, heavy emphasis on the notion of dependent contractors, which presumably 
would include people who are currently defined as workers as opposed to employees or self self employed. But from what you've said, the GMB thinks that there's a there there are potential problems down the road with that. Yes, I mean what what we're seeing here is just a sort of rebranding of a group. Um, there are some people that actually would not consider themselves dependent contractors but do think they're workers. Um, it's just fiddling around the edges. I mean, the fundamental and overriding issue with Taylor is that he wasn't allowed to look into taxation. And there's no question at all that the different types of employment status and taxation issues should be dealt with hand in hand. It's the taxation issues that the employers are trying to avoid. So you have to look at them both together. Okay, let's explore this a little more, if we may, because I, I, mean, I think I see parallels here between health and social care. One is the flip side of the other, and you're saying employment and taxation, a, a, yeah. a similar sort of relation. What, what needs to be done to rectify the current deficiencies in the taxation system from a, from a union perspective? Well, I mean, what we really want to see, of course, is employment rights extended across all the bands, um, and there be a floor of rights where possibly, if you're fully employed, there are one or two build-on rights that you get with that, but that people have a basic floor of rights across the board. Um, and what we're seeing in the current situation is moves to try and push people into bands where rights are limited or non-existent. And employers are naturally going to do that from a cost perspective. They're looking yeah. to reduce their costs. Yeah, it, it all comes down to money. Absolutely. And, and also the share of the cake. And, yeah. And, um, I come from I come from a generation where one of the catchphrases when I was getting involved in unions is we don't want a bigger slice of the cake we want the whole bakery. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, but the, we'll come back to that in a moment if we may, Maria. But 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 what are the sort of things that flow from the Uber and the Edison Lee rulings? If people are under the current regime are, are, are not self-employed, they therefore must be workers or employees. If they're workers or employees, they're entitled to bargain collectively, aren't they? Yes, that's absolutely right. I mean, there's always organising difficulties with a group like this because they they don't work in one single location, so it's more difficult to organise. But using social media, we found it to be a pretty effective way of reaching people that we're trying to talk to. So that's that's a strategic objective, I absolutely. guess, for, for the union. You, you've mentioned Taylor, and you've mentioned that that's going to be a big debate in 2018 about what Taylor means in practice. Um, what do you think are the other main issues that are going to preoccupy you and, and your, your counterparts in other unions in terms of legal services in the year ahead? Well, I think in general what we're seeing is, certainly in our union, is an increased casualisation of labour. That makes organising more difficult. I think we are ahead of the game in some respects because we've been organising in these difficult sectors for quite a few years. Mm-hmm. And I think other unions probably have had a more focused um, group of employers that they've been able to work with, and now that's changing. I think as far as legal services in general are concerned, all the changes in the costs regimes, all the issues around particularly employment law, and when you can bring claims, which are becoming increasingly complicated, have meant that it's more and more expensive to support union legal services, but they're more important than ever to trade union members. That's been really helpful in terms of setting up the landscape, and I'm sure, listeners, you'll have a, a view about what the issues are in your workplace or in your branch or your region, and the provision of legal services by unions is something that we will come back to for sure. But, but before we finish, Maria, I'd like to take the opportunity to ask you about, about you, kind of your story, as it, as it were, in the sense that, that, that clearly you're in a very influential position doing things that are really important, really, 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 really necessary. How did you get here? What's been your kind of trade union journey? Well, mine's actually been quite an unusual journey because I, whilst I started off as a legal aid criminal lawyer, 
Uh, for many years, I worked um, as a litigator and negotiator in the art world, So, it, and I travelled all around the world in that capacity. But I came back to the UK specifically to work with Paul Kenny, and he really needed a very tough, experienced litigator. Because I'd been in other waters, I was mm-hmm. able to come and come back and bring that to the issues we had around equal pay litigation. And that was a very uh, difficult and complicated project. It required a lot of experience, but we were able to successfully navigate those waters. After that, I started looking long-term at legal services within the union, and then we came up with the idea for Union Line and started thinking about how we were going to implement that. So on a personal level, I would say that... uh, Legal services is the one area where uh, gender doesn't seem to matter in the trade union movement. What you really need to be is uh, confident and competent. Indeed. Thank you very much indeed for spending time with the Unis 21 podcast. Best of luck for 2018. Thank you. Thank Thank you you very much. Thank you. So, listeners, I hope you'd agree that that explanation, particularly of how the Uber knot has been untied, yeah. was really, really helpful and, and a powerful message about what union legal services can do and, and need to do. No, it was really, really good to listen to. So, where wow. do we go from where do here? We go from here? What's next on the Unions 21 radar? Well, just to let you know that tickets for our conference on April the 13th will be available from the 1st of February. If you are already an individual supporter of Unions 21 or if your union is a supporter of Unions 21, then you can get hold of tickets. So if you're desperate to get your hands on a a conference ticket and you're not yet a supporter of Unions 21 then head over to www.unions21.org.uk forward slash join where you will be able to sign up to donate and get your tickets get your ticket cheap and the only way you're going to be able to get to our conference is if you've got a ticket absolutely and last year we just about we did sell out in fact we did sell out so and if your name's not on the list you're not coming in so, which would be a shame. It'd be a big shame. We it need would. to have. We'd need to have you there. It's going to be about the future of unions. It's going to look at um, how we do collective voice, the future of trade union education, and just the general future of unions themselves. And we're already starting to get our spe- speaker list come through. So, I'm not going to preempt any names just yet. But it's uh, quite some quite interesting people, and it'll be really good. So it's great. The other thing about membership is is actually we couldn't do this without your support. And by your support, I mean every single person who is listening to this and the unions that they are members of. Yeah. Yeah, so therefore, joining Unions 21, it, it enables us to make sure that the union voice and union-centred research is more prominent, more widely spoken about, more more visible. Yeah, absolutely. We could not do what we do without the support of unions and uh, other organisations and also individual supporters. Every penny that we are given goes directly onto the research and to the work that we do. And talking about making our voices heard more clearly and our reach extend more widely, if you're listening to this via iTunes, can you rate us five stars, please? Go on, you know you want to. Not because we want a five-star podcast, because we know we're that good anyway, sort of. But because actually that gets us onto all sorts of distribution and circulation and listening lists and means that the union voice is heard more, more widely. So if you could do that, we'd be very grateful. Be very, very grateful. I'd, I'll buy you a pint. And I'll make sure she sticks to her side of the bargain. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, the email address again, if you've got any ideas, comments, feedback. Info at unions21.org.uk.
So it's just for me, Simon Sapper, to say goodbye. And me, Becky Wright, saying goodbye as well. See you next time. Bye. Bye. The Unions 21 podcast was presented by Becky Wright and Simon Sapper. It was a Makes You Think production.